We come now to our lesson today. Last week, we began a new section in our study, and we are now considering the doctrine of salvation. And as we noted last time, this covers questions 29 through 38, and I talked with JP, I think we are going to split this, because that's a lot. So, Most of the questions in here deal with the benefits of salvation, that is, they talk about what exactly is applied to us in our redemption. However, before getting in those details, I wanted to spend some time on what exactly it is that Christ accomplished by his work of redemption, and then necessary flowing out of that discussion, for whom did Christ accomplish it for? And so we began to discuss this last week. We highlighted a few things. One, we noted that in the plan of redemption, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not at odds with one another. This is not a case where the Father just wants to destroy everybody, the Son loves everybody, and they're trying to work something out. This is the eternal, immutable, and infinite God we are talking about here, the triune God. They are of one substance, they are of one power, they are of one mind, they are of one purpose. Christ did not come to try to win over the Father and change his mind. Rather, his work was the very expression of the Father's mind. For Jesus himself said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we see the atonement flows out of the grace of God. Romans 5 eight, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hence, we can say then that in the redemptive work of Christ, including his death on the cross, the love of God is demonstrated. But secondly, as we also noted, the love of God is not to be divorced or put at odds with his holiness. Just as the persons are not at odds with one another, so the character of God is not at odds with itself. I emphasize that because as you read some explanations of the atonement by some people, this view that we are presenting, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, is rejected. In the words of one Franciscan friar, he says this view, quote, implies that God the Father was petty, offended in the way that humans are, and unfree to love and forgive of God's own volition. Well, apparently this friar forgot about the holiness of God. Something we tend to do as rebellious creatures. The holiness of God is emphasized over and over and over again in Scripture, even more so than His love. And this refers not only to His absolute distinctness from all His creatures, but to His infinite majesty and His moral purity as well. In the words of John Murray, quote, being contrary to God's nature, sin is repulsive to Him. He is allergic to sin, so to speak. He cannot look upon it. He is compelled to turn away from it, unquote. God hates sin with a perfect hatred. Psalm 5, 4-6, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. 
And again, just as a little side note, as I mentioned last week, any movement, any group of people, any person who tries to get you to believe or to say or to do something in the name of love that ignores God's law, that ignores God's standard for our lives, that person knows nothing about true love. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And in Romans 13, he wrote, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, in God, love and holiness are at perfect harmony with one another. And so any view or attitude that tries to pit love against holiness knows nothing about love. In the redemptive work of Christ, we see love and holiness in perfect harmony. In the death of Christ, we see the grace and mercy that God freely bestows upon a wretched and undeserving people. But we also see that he loves us not at the expense of his holiness, which would be no true love at all. And then thirdly, we ended last week by speaking of Christ's redemptive work under the general concept of obedience. All of Christ's life was an act of obedience which purchased and secured our salvation. In the passive, or some may call it penal sense, Christ willingly took upon himself all of the penalties imposed by the law. He bore in himself by legal imputation the penalty of our sin. And then in Christ's active, or some may call it preceptive obedience, Christ obeys fully and perfectly all that the law of God prescribes for us. And he does this to make available to us a perfect righteousness before the law that we could not do ourselves, but it is imputed to those who put their trust in him. And so that's the general way of viewing Christ's atoning work. But now we want to get a little bit more specific and consider some of the details of that work. The first detail I want to consider today is Christ's work as a sacrifice. We see this language, for example, in Jesus Christ as our high priest. The book of Hebrews presents the work of Christ as that of a high priest who offered himself up as a sacrifice to God. Hebrews 7, 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for, his own, uh, for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. We see this in the language of Christ as the Lamb of God. Jesus is described both as God's Lamb, who, quote, takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29 whose, quote, precious blood is a lamb without blemish and defect has redeemed us, 1 Peter 1.19, and the Lamb who with his blood purchased men to God, Revelation 5, and in whose blood men have washed their robes and made them white, Revelation 7.14. And while some of these passages convey the, the idea, the sense of sacrifice, without using that exact word, there are scriptures that use that very word to describe Christ's work. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. 
for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. In Hebrews 9, 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And in Hebrews 10, 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And speaking of being offered, there's another word that's used, offering. Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And in Hebrews 9, 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly, who are eagerly waiting for him. And so clearly the atoning work of Christ is continually described in Scripture as, or in terms of sacrifice and offering. So much so that Murray writes that, quote, it lies on the very face of the New Testament that his work is construed as sacrifice. So that it's seen as a sacrifice is without question. But that raises, does raise a question. And that question is, what type of sacrifice are we dealing with here? You see, just as the concept of love can be twisted and distorted and read back into the Bible, so the concept of sacrifice can be twisted and distorted. Some of those same people who want to steer you away from God and his word in the name of love are the same people who will tell you what great sacrifices they're making to live that lifestyle. And they'll read that twisted understanding of sacrifice into the text. But we need to understand that the Bible was not written in a vacuum. The New Testament was not written in a vacuum. The entire life work of Christ was not performed in a vacuum. The New Testament writers didn't just throw out these ideas and say, you just kind of fill in the blank, just give it whatever meaning you want. Rather, when you read of Christ's work as a high priest, as a sacrifice, as an offering, your mind should immediately go to the Hebrew Scriptures the Old Testament. That was the world of ideas and language that Christ and the apostles lived and breathed. And it's there that we deepen our understanding of the nature of Christ's work. In fact, according to Exodus 25, 40, and affirmed in Hebrews 8, 5, the instructions that Moses received regarding the tabernacle were patterned after the heavenly tabernacle. Hebrews 8, 5 says, They, that is the priests, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And so you see, God in his infinite wisdom gave Israel this priestly and sacrificial system to serve as a tool to teach them theology to teach them about the remedy of sin and how we are reconciled to God. It was in the pages of their Bible at the time that the apostles were able to discern how that sacrificial system typified the work of Christ. In fact, Paul says in Romans 3, 21 and 22, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, for the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so when we go back and we consider the type 
There are two very important concepts that are taught in that sacrificial system that help us under, understand the atoning work of Christ. And that, these are the two concepts of expiation and propitiation. So let's just consider those two briefly and it will be done. To expiate means to make amends, to atone for. Specifically, it means it refers to the cleansing of sin and the removal of sin's guilt. L. Michael Morales writes, in the sacrificial system of Israel, blood was col collected from an animal's severed arteries and then manipulated in a variety of ways. Blood was smeared, sprinkled, tossed, and poured out. In Leviticus 17, 11, the Lord declared that since the life of the flesh is in the blood, he gave Israel blood on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Underlining the idea of substitution. That is, the shed blood of a blameless substitute represented life for life, soul for soul. Blood's importance was underscored most prominently by the sin offering. Through the shedding and manipulation of the sin offering's blood, God taught Israel their need for cleansing from sin and for the removal of sin's defilement and guilt, making divine forgiveness possible, as we read in Leviticus chapter 4. On the one hand, the blood signified death, displaying the blood before God demonstrated that a life, albeit the life of an unblemished animal substitute, had endured death, the wages of sin. And on the other hand, blood represented the life of flesh. By the principle that life conquers death, blood was used ritually to wipe away, as it were, the defilement of sin and death. And notice here, Morales mentions that this underlies the idea of substitution. Again, another extremely important idea. Beloved, Christ did not die as a potential sacrifice. Well, let me do this, and this is hope it works. That is such nonsense. Rather, he died as an actual substitute for some people, for specific people. There are three prepositions in Greek that describe this relationship between Christ and, and those for whom he died. There's the preposition peri, which basically means that Christ died for others. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Romans 8, verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. In Galatians 1, 4, Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And then there is the preposition hyper. That is, Christ dies in behalf of others. Again, Romans 5, 6 through 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in Galatians 2, 20, 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then there's the preposition anti. You know, we think of antichrist, we think of someone who's opposed to Christ. And there's a sense where that's true, but that preposition also can mean in the stead of, in the place of someone or something. And this Christ died, and this was the nature of his death. Matthew 20, verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, turning, uh, returning to Morales, the Day of Atonement was essentially an elaborate sin offering. On this autumn day, the high priest brought the blood of sacrifice into the most holy place, sprinkling before the atonement lid of the ark, the earthly footstool of God. Blood was also sprinkled in the holy place and applied to the outer altar as well, cleansing both the Israelites and the house of God, the tabernacle, that he might continue to dwell among his people. The one sin offering of the Day of the Atonement involved two goats. After the first had been sacrificed for the, blood, for the sake of its blood, the other goat was symbolically loaded with the guilt of Israel's sins as the high priest would press both hands down to his head and confess those sins over the animal. Weighed down with the judgment-worthy guilt of Israel on its head, the goat was then driven eastward far from the face of God into the wilderness, a demonstration that, quote, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us, Psalm 103. The sin offering then offered the apostles a profound understanding of the death of Christ. And that is, while the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins, the blood of Jesus, the God-man, shed on the cross and applied by the Spirit to those who trust in him, cleanses sinners from their sins. The thorns pressed down into his brow, an image of humanity's cursed estate, Genesis 3, thorns and thistles. Those thorns pressed down into his brow was a token of his bearing the weight of his people's guilt on his head, further demonstrating that he endured our fiery judgment to provide us with true expiation, unquote. And so we see clearly in all of this the cleansing of sin and the removal of sin's guilt. And then secondly and lastly, we see in Christ's atoning work, propitiation. To propitiate means to appease or to placate wrath. This idea presupposes the wrath and displeasure of God against sin, which we've already spoken of. And it's the purpose of propitiation to remove that displeasure. Again, Morales writes, turning to the doctrine of propitiation, we find a vivid portrayal of the assaging, that is the, the, the relief of God's wrath as we reflect now on the whole burnt offering. Israel's worship was founded on the whole burnt offering, so much so that the altar, the central focus of worship, was even dubbed the altar of burnt offering, Exodus 30. The first episode in Scripture where the whole burnt offering appears is in the story of the flood in Genesis 6-9. through Early on, we are told that the Lord God, who is the main character in the narrative, was grieved to his heart over humanity's sinful corruption. 
and that he determined to punish the wicked while saving Noah and his household. The crisis of the story then is the aggrieved heart of God. And even after the waters of divine judgment had abated, however, the situation was not changed. God had not been appeased. His just wrath was not assuaged until Noah, at the dawn of a new creation, built an altar and offered up whole burnt offerings. Using instructive language that attributes human traits to God, the narrative describes the Lord as smelling the pleasing aroma of the whole burnt offering so that his heart was comforted. Genesis 8.21 And as a result of the pleasing aroma, God spoke to his own heart, vowing never to destroy all humanity in such a manner again, and he blessed Noah. Like a fragrant incense, the smoke of the whole burnt offering ascended into heaven, the abode of God, and he, smelling its soothing aroma, was appeased. God's heart was comforted, that is, his righteous wrath was satisfied. And later on, through Moses, God ordained for the priesthood to offer up lambs daily as whole burnt offerings. These morning and evening offerings serve to open and close each day so that every other sacrifice, along with the daily life of Israel, was enclosed in the ascending smoke of their pleasing aroma. The whole burnt offering's divinely ordained impact on God leads one to wonder over its theological significance. The one feature that is unique to this offering is that it was the whole animal, apart from his skin, that was offered up to God on the altar. Nothing was held back. The whole burnt offering thus signified a life of utter consecration to God, which means a life of self-denying obedience to his law. In the words of Deuteronomy, this, often, or this offering represented and solicited ones loving the Lord with all of one's heart, soul, and might. And it was such a life lived by Jesus alone that he offered up to God, which ascended to heaven as a pleasing aroma and propitiates God. Jesus fulfilled the Levitical system of sacrifice only because he offered himself up to God on the cross as one who had fulfilled the law. And in his tormented night of prayer in Gethsemane, he had prayed, My Father, not as I will, but as you will. And then he drank the cup of divine judgment as our blameless substitute. Jesus' life of complete and loving devotion to God, offered up to the Father by the Spirit and through the cross, this is the assaging of God's wrath. And as, of course, as we might expect, we see this very language in the New Testament. Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And then in Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And then 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he had loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
And so we see in this sacrificial system typified and then fulfilled in the work of Christ our expiation and propitiation. Now I'll close with this wonderful, encouraging words from Morales. Because Jesus' suffering was a vicarious, penal substitute, sinners can find rest for their souls. The impending thunderstorm of divine judgment that ever threatens us, overshadowing our vain attempts at happiness, cannot be dispelled by wishful thinking or misguided assertions. A Christian basks securely in the warm rays of the Father's favor only because that storm of judgment has already broken in the full measure of its fury on the crucified Son of God. His shed blood cleanses us from our sins, removing our guilt from the sight of God. And his wholehearted, law-keeping life offered up to God through the cross, even as he bore up our penalty, rises to heaven as a pleasing aroma. Here at last, the chief of sinners finds cause to boast in nothing at all except in the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5.2. Amen.